Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Beijing. Have you heard of fur skiing before? What does it feel like to ski in Xinjiang, China? Altai in Xinjiang is believed to be the place where skiing originated. For centuries, it was a necessary skill for the locals to survive the harsh winters, and now it's more about a way of living. French photographer Nicole de Rouge and Moroccan architect Hasna Razlaoui experienced both forms of skiing while making the five-part documentary World's Ultimate Frontier. How fascinating is the oldest form of skiing on Earth? What makes them feel deeply connected with the locals and what are their takeaways from the journey? I was pleased to be joined from Shanghai by Nico de Rouge and Hasla Razlaoui. I started by asking Hasna about her first ever skiing experience in Altai. Yeah, so I actually had, had no uh, skiing experience before. Not just a little, not at all. Because Morocco is not really the... <laughs> the place to ski in, although there are some places to ski, but uh, I haven't done it before. So it was um, that first moment and first episode was quite special because not only it was the first time I'm going to start welcoming a guest and start the, the hosting of the documentary, but also the first time I'm skiing, the first time I'm in Xinjiang, the first time of many things at the same time. So it was very emotionally um, intense and um, it was magical thanks to our guest Subinor because she was so loving so she was so generous with me she was uh, teaching me how to do it and uh, I surpassed my own limits <laughs> because um, it was scary when you ski in for the first time you don't even know how to stand how to go how to yes. handle it and uh, she was really like hugging me and handling with me the things and telling me what to do and uh, we did it we were skiing and I mean, the slope was not so high, but for me, it was impressive anyway. Um, I was screaming all the time when I was on the, <laughs> on the ski for the very first time coming from southern yeah. China, you know, not a region where people uh, ski a lot. So I sh totally share your fear, but, you know, that excitement as well. Um, Nicole, let me turn to you a little bit and uh, ask you to describe to us um, your sentiments when you first got on the first ski. I understand it is the world's oldest form of skiing. I never heard of it. Um, tell us more about it. What yeah. is first ski in the first place? Yes, as you said, it's the oldest uh, form of skiing um, that might have originated from this area. And basically, it's just two, ski, two skis made out of wood and then covered in horse leg skin under with the hair in a specific direction so you can glide down the slope but when you go up it actually catches on it doesn't and doesn't slide uh, and then you use one lace of leather to go around your boot and that is your ski boot do we know how long it it has uh dating back to what age this form of skiing I don't remember exactly how long it was. Um, I remember it was a few thousand years ago um, when Malitin introduced it to me. And quite the opposite of Hasna, I've skied a lot when I was a kid. When I was young, I spent a lot of time in the mountains skiing, snowboarding. 
And that was very different. You might have seen in the documentary, this beautiful fall uh, that I took because skiing on these first skis was very different from what I learned. Were you scared when you were on the on the first I was, ski? I was quite scared because of that leather boot. Like the only way your foot is linked to the ski is with just a string of leather. And mm. for people with weak ankles or knees, like me, I was a bit afraid of hurting myself. I want to ask you, Hasna, how was this experience to you as someone who never visited Xinjiang before? To go there, to see the facility, to see the place and to meet the people and to meet um, Subinor, uh, a Xinjiang, she's from Uyghur ethnic group, right? Yeah, to meet someone there and seeing that, you know, probably she's no different from any other woman you meet somewhere else. Were you, was it surprising? I mean, how did you feel when you had that experience? Um, with Subinor as well as with the other uh, people, local people there, uh, it was um, surprising to see how much the connection was really easily, strongly established from the first moments with each one of the guests and also with Subinor. We barely spoke the same language, but I really felt like we were besties skiing around i really felt closer to her and that was the that was the, the the first moment of you know hosting the documentary did you have this kind of experience with other people you met in xinjiang or was it exception that you had with with subino i thought it was it was exceptional because it was the first guest that i received but honestly i really felt that connection with all of the guests i've been with I don't know what it is, but I really felt connected to them as if we were coming from the same culture in a way. We were really uh, similar in so many ways in our personalities. Or there was just a very good energy and a very strong connection without speaking any words sometimes with some of the guests. We couldn't even speak, but those smiles, those eyes, those um, interactions were really, really warm. Yeah. And that yeah. is the thing that I remember the most uh, from my experience uh, in Xinjiang. Let me get to Nicole as well. And Nicole, you were told you were uh, interacting with the local villagers, right? Who were teaching you how to do the first skiing. Did you have this connection with them? Was it fun? Was it easy to communicate with them? Did you understood each other very easily? These guys were the were the members of the first ski team of Maritim. Actually, communicating with them was not so easy because. We didn't have much language in common. Um, my Mandarin is not that great. And I think their Mandarin was better than mine, but still not that great either. Uh, so I was still, we were still going through Malitin to communicate. Or just as Hasna said, like we were on first keys and they saw what I, the struggle I was going through. And that just creates connection. You're practicing a sport, an old tradition together. They're introducing me to their culture. And they see that I'm trying and I want to understand. And I think in that case, we didn't use many words, but we still connected around the first key tradition. Oh, was this surprising to you? Because I read some statistics that Altai is actually one of the most, the hottest ski destinations in China, the number of tourists that go to Xinjiang for ski uh, holidays from home and abroad actually jumped by, I saw something like 200% over the past year. Was it something you had expected, um, Nicole, first? 
I didn't see that in uh, the place I went to was was a smaller village, you know, Khomu, mm. for for Hasna's um, part when we went to Kukatwohai, definitely saw a lot of people even from from abroad. And recently this year, I mean, last year, I heard from friends uh, who told me they were going to Xinjiang to ski, uh, both friends from Shanghai, China, Shanghainese people and also foreigners. Hasna, you were in Kukatohai, right? And you were in the ski resort. So what did you see and uh, what's your experience? Um, well, for me, it was one of the first times anyway, I'm seeing a ski resort. So I wasn't expecting <laughs> anything and I wasn't, I was surprised by default anyway. So I, I didn't have a comparison with anything else. But yeah, it was impressive to see how big it is, how beautiful it is and how how there was a lot of people and there were um, quite some good infrastructures and it was really ready for tourism. I think it was quite impressive, the, the Kokotohai resort and slopes compared to other places I've, I've been skiing in China. Um, the infrastructures in Kokotohai and, and the slopes were a step above. Even the slopes and because it's also higher mountains compared to oh, yeah. others I've been to, good quality snow. I mean, it, it seemed really good. So you would recommend it to your friends or family yes. who love skiing? Yes. For people, <laughs> okay. people the slopes are too high, China. though. The slopes I, are too high? <laughs> uh -oh. Not good for me. <laughs> I'm not sure whether I want to try it. Okay, try it. but I have that in my mind. Let's talk about something else. As I said, the yields. And um, mm -hmm. you're an architect, Hasna. So... I, I guess you are particularly interested seeing the people designing the yurts and rendering it, you know, in, in the computer. And so how did you find that experience and uh, what did you take away from that? That yurts day was uh, one of my most special moments like ever <laughs> in my life. It was really, wow. uh, first I met the, um, the son of our guest. He was um, helping his mom, you know, designing uh, he was collaborating with his mom designing those yurts. And um, what I remember from that night in the this gigantic, impressive, most impressive, actually, space I've seen, because it, not only it's different from anything I've seen before, but also the, the size of it was really um, immense. But this night was uh, very special to me because I don't have exact memory, but I have memories of flashes of colors fabrics, animal broderies everywhere on the walls, on the furniture, this beautiful furniture, old uh, furniture of Xinjiang. And I remember music. It was a big party at the yurts at the end of that day. There was music and I remember flashes of, of movements, of dance movements. And again, I remember the people, uh, people's eyes, people's smiles, people teaching me how to dance. And it was just a a mirage of, of dancing and movement and music and colors and, and culture and, and, mm. and dressings. And it was so rich in that regard. Well, as I said, when I watched that uh, clip, I clearly felt you were in that moment. You were definitely, um, wow. yeah, as one, you know, with the people with that, that yes, time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, and they were, they would uh, introduce you to their, their mem members of their family and their clothes. They would put hats on you and dress you with their clothes and teach you how to dance. They were really proudly showcasing their culture. And I felt I was part of it mm. that night. You know, this is very interesting because when I was in Xinjiang, I've been there twice making um, films and reporting. And when I, when I left, 
I always felt like I didn't want to go. You know, the people yeah. were so, so kind, so sweet. So what is your impression, Hasna, of that place? Would you say that moment uh, epitomizes that first encounter you had about Xinjiang and you're, you're going to remember that place as such a warm place where you connected with the people and the culture? Absolutely. Xinjiang is a place that, that left an um, everlasting impression on me. Architecturally, people, food, fabrics, cultures, art, everything really stayed within me. And I'm having, I'm still having the feeling of everything that I experienced there when I think about it, when I think of the people and I think of everything around it. It was, um, it was a place I will never forget, forget that's for sure. Hmm. Nicole, was that your first experience in Xinjiang or have you been before? And um, what did that filming trip uh, leave with you? It was my first time in Xinjiang. Um, I have a lot of friends from Xinjiang in Shanghai, um, a whole team I, I play sports with. But um, it was my first time ever there. And I felt it was very interesting for me to see a lot of the different cultures and different minorities that make Xinjiang, uh, because I was lucky enough to go and visit. The first episode, as you saw, was with the Tuwa people uh, for the first key, and then uh, went to see Kazakh, a Kazakh family, then Tajik, mm -hmm. then Kyrgyz. So it was very, very diverse, just like the region. And most of these people, as Hasna was saying, were very warm and very welcoming and they saw me they saw me come and ask a lot, a lot of questions and they were always willing to share what makes their traditions and their culture special unique and interesting mm -hmm. and so it was many different experiences that were very interesting for me uh, intellectually but also visually for photos uh, mm -hmm. some of very good photos that I, I i still love to this day i took in xinjiang well, I hope you you will um, keep that memory, and I hope that in the future there may be future opportunities um, for you to visit Xinjiang. I certainly will go back <laughs> this year. Yeah. Do oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, skiing as well. <laughs> Let me pump up my courage. <laughs> Don't want to break my legs, but uh, I think I'll be in good hands. Anyway, thank you so much, Nikhil and Hasna, for sharing with us your Hello. stories on this filming trip, and I recommend more people to watch World's Ultimate Frontier, um, a five-part documentaries about Xinjiang's life and culture. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. We will take a short break and when we come back, my exclusive interview with Jeffrey Sachs, President of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network and Director of the Center for Sustainable Development at uh, Columbia University. How does he perceive U.S. interests regarding Taiwan? We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point.
On January the 7th, China announced sanctions against five U.S. arms manufacturers over weapons sales to China's Taiwan region. The move followed U.S. approval of 300 million U.S. dollars in so-called military aid for the island last December. U.S. President Joe Biden reaffirmed that the U.S. does not support the independence of the island after the results of the region's leadership and legislature elections were unveiled earlier this month. But is the U.S. walking the talk? Does the U.S. have an interest in seeing the two sides separated? I was joined from New York by Professor Jeffrey Sachs, President of the U.N. Sustainable Development Solutions Network and Director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. I started by asking his perspectives on the U.S. intentions regarding Taiwan in 2024. I personally feel that the U.S. attempt to arm Taiwan, whether by giving weapons or selling weapons, is reckless and dangerous, first and foremost, for Taiwan. Uh, the United States did the same in Ukraine. It tried to pump up Ukraine with U.S. weapons after 2014. Look what it got uh, for Ukraine. Uh, it put Ukraine into a devastating war that never would have happened had the United States not tried to arm Ukraine. So I think that the whole U.S. approach of saying we're going to pump weapons into Taiwan is reckless, first and foremost, for Taiwan. And I hope that it doesn't encourage some kind of terrible missteps in Taiwan as a result of thinking, well, the U.S. is backing us up with weapons. Everybody should take a deep breath, should calm down, and should not build armaments. We need peace across the Straits, and the United States, most of all, should not be shipping arms to Taiwan unilaterally. This is against U.S. interests, U.S. diplomacy, and especially it's against Taiwan's security, in my view. Well, the United States has always talked about defending democracy uh, versus authoritarianism because there are elections in Taiwan where people vote for the, for, the, for the leaders of the region. So it's a democracy. So the United States need to protect that place from being, you know, unified by the mainland, which is not a democracy. That is all in the U.S.'s uh, definition. Do you buy that kind of narrative? Do you think it is about that? <laughs> not at all. Uh, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy is based on a terrible and illegal idea called regime change. The U.S. Uh, since 1947, since the National Security Act and the establishment of the CIA, has seen fit to determine who governs where around the world. Of course, it can't do this, but it tries to do this. There have been more than 80 U.S.-led regime change operations during this period. These are illegal, they are dangerous, and they are destabilizing. Sometimes they throw out democracies and bring in uh, authoritarian governments. Sometimes they throw out authoritarian governments and bring in so-called democracies. But what they almost always do is make a complete mess, lead to war and instability. And the main point that I am emphasizing for U.S. foreign policy above all is the doctrine of non-intervention, which is a global legal doctrine under the U.N. Charter, which is that countries should not in 
interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, much less try to overthrow their governments. So this is the U.S. terrible habit, and it's completely documented now, dozens and dozens and dozens of cases, and it continues, and it's extremely dangerous. It has nothing to do with democracy per se. It has to do with the United States government trying to put in place governments that it thinks will support American interests. Here, the United States, what do you think is the aim of the United States to intervene in the, in the issues of Taiwan? Because Taiwan seems to be particularly interesting for the United States. You know, it doesn't care so much about some other islands that, are, that have historical disputes with, uh, you know, other parts of the country. But in Taiwan, it seems the United States is particularly um, careful not to leave it alone. Because uh, if the United States had not intervened in the, in the, in the situation, um, the two sides probably would have already reunited with each other and peacefully. Well, there, there was the so-called consensus of 1992, which was a, a consensus to keep things very calm uh, and uh, to keep peace uh, and cooperation across the straits. And the United States, in my view, can't leave good enough alone. Why would a speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States fly to Taiwan over the strenuous objections uh, of uh, the uh, the government uh, in in Beijing to say don't don't do that don't destabilize uh, please don't interfere the United States likes to interfere it likes to provoke uh, of course there's been a Taiwan lobby uh, going back to 1950 but uh, it's this is aimed also in general at poking uh, at uh, the mainland there's no question about it uh, it's provocative especially because the United States has a one China policy. This is the basis of diplomacy between the PRC and right. the United States of America. And the United States should live up to its diplomacy and not provoke. And what I'm saying in my article is the US is getting no security out of this. We're not safer as a result of this. We're not making the world calmer or more prosperous or more sustainable as a result of all of this. We're not managing our budget out of all of this. We're not gaining economically out of this. This is a business operation in the United States, and it's, it is a scam. Is the United States provoking for the sake of provoking, or what is the strategic or geopolitical interest or economic, I don't know, or the, you know, um, weapons sales that some people are benefiting? What is the United States getting from provoking China on the issue of Taiwan, from preventing the two sides from getting closer? We don't, we don't know when reunification is going to happen, but, you know, the United States obviously doesn't want to see the two sides get very close. In my opinion, uh, if the United States uh, at a top level uh, and uh, the PRC at a top level sat down and had honest and mutual, respectful uh, diplomacy over this issue, there would be no tensions like this. Uh, this would calm things down. Also, it would calm things down between Taiwan uh, and, and the mainland across the Straits, I should say by pumping in arms, by raising rhetoric, uh, by having uh, U.S. politicians fly over to Taiwan, uh, by having all sorts of uh, outlandish statements made by U.S. congressmen and senators who do that for a living, uh, thinking that somehow, I don't know what they're thinking, they're not thinking very much. This has raised the temperature very, very much 
and it's extremely dangerous because it just takes a misstep by Taiwan's politicians uh, or by American politicians to set off something that nobody could conceivably want. And unfortunately, this happens. This is what's happened in Ukraine. This is an open war that is ripping to that country to shreds right now mm. that never had to happen at all. Do you think the United States has a interest in seeing the two sides separated, seeing the two sides not reunified? Because that will definitely make China a stronger country, a stronger player. I think in general, the United States is trying to put roadblocks in China's progress economically, technologically, and geopolitically, because China is a big, powerful uh, country. Uh, it is a great civilization. Uh, and the United States has this pretension and presumption of dominance. So if you start out with the idea that you must be number one, not that you must be safe, but that you must be number one, then from the U.S. point of view, China's rise is an affront. It's a threat. Of course, it's no threat at all if seen in a different perspective, if seen in the perspective of cooperation, if seen in the perspective of working together to solve global problems, it's a benefit, it's not a threat. But if your goal is number one, then it is a threat. So at the core of all of this is a big US anxiety. The big US anxiety is the self-perception of the US security state that it must predominate that it must be number one. Starting from that, everything about China looks like a threat. If we started instead from the US real interest in peace, security, cooperation, facing global challenges like climate change and so forth, we'd have a completely different perception. So it's as we were discussing earlier, when the Secretary of Defense of the United States says we must be the most powerful, it's already a lost cause in a way of security and safety, because if you define foreign policy as being predominant, you can't be safe and secure. If you define foreign policy as peace, cooperation, mutual security, respect for international law, mm. then you can be safe and secure. Yeah. Well, very thought-provoking and very interesting insight. Thank you so much, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, for sharing with us your important insights on these very important issues. Thanks to you. My pleasure. With that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing.